Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week. I'm also the author of the multi-volume series, Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, Volume 1 and Volume 2 out, both in print digital, audio, and video book from Lit Video, where every year I take 30 of our most influential guests from that year or previous years, and with their permission, write a short, easy, breezy chapter around one transformational insight they shared on this podcast. Hope you pick up a copy of Master Mentors, Volume 3, releasing in the fall of 2023. Today's guest is a friend of mine. I've had the privilege of being on his number one rated podcast His book is called Sell Without Selling Out. His name is Andy Paul. And whether you think you are in sales formally or informally, you're going to learn a few things today from our conversation with Andy. Andy, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thank you for having me. Pleasure, man. So you and I have built a friendship over the last couple of years. You've been uh, gracious enough to lower your standard and invite me on to your (laughs) podcast where I spent a career much like yours the last 30 years of my career was in business development, sales, sales leadership, and marketing. And so I am an unabashedly proud person that creates sales and funds companies' revenue and payroll. I believe that nothing happens until someone sells something. And the best salespeople are those that have their clients' best interest at hearts. wasn't always my sales strategy, but as I matured and became a better salesperson, I understood what my goal really was. Andy, we're going to delve into your fun and practical book today, Sell Without Selling Out. Talk a bit about your journey to the podcast, a bit about your sales podcast and why you wrote the book. Sure. Um, gosh, I've been doing my podcast for about seven years. Uh, yeah, up to about 1,250 episodes. And it was sort of similar motivation to start it as it was to write this book, which was that I think we're, we're less proficient at selling in the business-to-business sense today than we were 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. And I was curious about the reasons why and what we could do to change that. Andy, I've listened to many of the episodes on your podcast, been a guest um, at least on one occasion. And I think, it's, I think yeah. it, it's a couple times. I think it's so resonant because, as I said before, as you have said, everyone is in sales, whether they want to admit it or not, whether they want to articulate it or not. It still has a little bit of a negative connotation for a few outliers well, you and I have also seen a mass, I think, I, I have at least seen an evolution in the sophistication of sales, right? Whether it was, you know, getting to yes or uh, uh, sales that talk about being the trusted advisor, kind of moving through, you know, understanding all the features and benefits to really having your mindset be around what is the client need and are you right or wrong for them and you're building a relationship where over time they'll come back to you for advice and referrals Will you talk about what you think are some of the perpetual mistakes and challenges that formal salespeople get wrong? Well, it starts with the idea is that they start with themselves, right? It's about what they're trying to get out of the interaction with the, the buyer or the prospect as opposed to really focusing on what the buyer needs. And I believe this has become you know, worse over the last several decades, if you will, with really quite some of the... I don't know, a tendency to lean on the technology to begin interactions with buyers rather than really focusing on on the buyer themselves. So, yeah, I actually think that we've gotten, I won't say less sophisticated, but less competent in many respects in this idea about 
building a fundamental relationship based on trust and credibility with the buyer and having their best interest as heart as we go forward. So as I describe in the book, I sort of break the world into two, two parts. You're either selling out or you're selling in. And unfortunately, the results you know, that we see, the data that's, that's published about uh, some coming from a book written by one of your colleagues, Jennifer Colosimo and some others uh, in their book, Strikingly Different Selling, talk about you know, the average win rate in B2B sales these days is at 17%, meaning that sellers are closing on average less than one of every five of their most qualified opportunities. And I think that's, uh, that's really problematic, and, but something we can change. Andy, I want to push on you because it seems counterintuitive to me. I, I can't imagine that there is a salesperson left in the world that doesn't fundamentally understand now it's all about your customer. Yes, you have a quarterly pressure to meet your quarterly goal or you're going to get canned. Yes, you've got to meet your quarters and sell the right mix or you won't find yourself in Maui at President's Club. All those pressures exist and you've got to balance those. But it just strikes me as incomprehensible that a person who is a seasoned salesperson or even entering sales wouldn't realize that it's all relationship-based and that your, your paradigm, your mindset has to be consumed with the success of your client. What does your client need and how best do you get them there, even if it means you lose the sale because you want that person to come back to you as a trusted advisor? Perhaps I'm naive, prove me wrong. <laughs> well, again, let's start with the data that came from the book written by your colleagues. Yeah, they talk about, they did this research, 5,500 companies, uh, surveyed multiple industry segments, average win rates, I said 17%. That, the win rate is the buyer's ultimate referendum right. on their experience working with the seller. So if if sellers at the point where on average, as I said, they're, they're losing 80% of the opportunities they're working on. Uh, when they do win, what that's saying is the buyer is making the decision to buy from them in spite of them, not because of them. And to your point about the relationships, you know, there's this growing segment of sales, quote unquote, experts out there that are actively trying to minimize or in the minds of, of people that follow them are trying to minimize the importance of the relationship, with the buyer saying, no, it's you know, people these days, they're just too busy. They want to be purely transactional. They don't care about the relationship, which I think they're completely wrong. And the data, I believe, proves them to be wrong. But this is actually, you know, this is actually a, a pretty sizable population within the sales world, especially in the tech space, that's saying, no, this is, yeah, we're much more transactional. We've got these processes, very well-defined processes. And if we just follow the process, the buyer will follow. And it's not happening. And so again, that was one of the reasons for writing the book. Say, look, there's a different way to do this that is based on putting the buyer first, that does result in creating buying experiences for the buyer. They're much more positive. In addition to which, you know, the data exists to show that when buyers are making a purchase decision, and this is actually the challenge Gartner and the challenger sale, Brett Adamson and Matt Dixon wrote about this back in 2011, is data shows that the number one factor the buyers take into account when they make the purchase decision is their experience working with the individual seller. It's not about the product, it's not about the price, not about the functionality, it's that experience with the seller. Andy, how would you address the following scenario? Perhaps companies are making it more difficult 
for their salespeople to break out of that because everyone's got a click funnel, everyone's got a sales process, everyone's got a marketing automation process where there's lead scoring and they're ginning people up and sending them emails and hopefully opt-in, but typically not. You might argue that you've got well-intended salespeople who are kind of caught up in the, the fury, the storm of all of this process and automation and digitization and that good old-fashioned relationship building is difficult a, post-pandemic, people are harder to find. B, people's skills may not be as sharp as they were back you know, in 2018, 2019, because they've lost some of that, that ability. And C, everyone's so damn busy. There's so much of an onslaught for your attention, it's hard to actually take someone to lunch. How would you, sure. how would you address that? Well, I think people have always been busy. I mean, I, there's always this temptation to compare generations and and everybody says, oh, it's impossible to get somebody on the phone today. And I, parking back to the beginning of my career, everybody had an admin, everybody had a secretary, you, every decision maker, you didn't get through to anybody ever. Uh, so the challenges existed the same you know, years ago as it does now. I think, I think the difference is, is that it really starts with leadership. And at the top is there's so much activity or so much focus on activity Right? Are we making enough calls? Are we, you know, having setting up enough demos? Are we, and walking through these processes, and so the focus of management is all on quantity of things, quantity of activities, rather than the quality of those activities. And the result is we're really ending up managing sales in much the same way that we did 100 plus years ago. We're in a completely different age where we should be looking at how effective, because we can really measure, you know, how effective are each of those interactions? And are they having the, the result of helping the buyer be able to move through their process more quickly in order to reach a decision using the least amount of their time and energy possible? And unfortunately, that's not what's going on right now. And because it's all about, hey, let me go out and persuade you to buy my product. And that is the way, the predominant way that sellers are trained. Their mindset is, if you ask, and I ask all the time, I speak to in public to groups, is as sellers, you know, what is your job? And it's, invariably, it comes back to some variant of, my job is to go out and persuade the buyer to buy my product. As opposed to saying, look, my job is to go out and listen to the buyer, to understand the things that are really most important to them in terms of the problems they're trying to solve and the outcomes they're trying to achieve, and then help them get that. And that, you know, when you have those two different mindsets, one really leads to what I right about in the book is very salesy, classics are salesy behaviors. They're very off-putting to the buyer versus one, which is more, as you talked about at the beginning, more of a trusted advisor role that, you know, that's really how you're being judged by the buyer. So Andy, let's pivot and get really practical on some solutions. Sure. Uh, I want you to describe the behaviors of salespeople who both consistently meet their quotas monthly, mm -hmm. quarterly, annually, whatever the sales companies put up for them in terms of product mix and high margin products and how you earn the points to the chairman's club. And those same salespeople who are trusted by their clients to only guide them on the path that's right for the client. So those two tensions that are sometimes in opposite correlation, what practically do the best salespeople do that accomplish both of those things simultaneously? Well, I break it down to the book into four, four pillars of behaviors, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity. And those who are consistently successful 
are those who go beyond looking at you know discovery as being a uh, you know, a way for me to find out whether you're a fit for what we're doing, as opposed to using discovery to help the buyer develop a better understanding of what their problems are and the outcomes they can achieve by addressing those problems. And this is this is starts right at the beginning, right? If you think you're, uh, yeah, there can be top achievers that hit numbers, but you know, they're sort of numbers driven, they're always buyer centric. They're saying, look, are you, they're just going through the, you know, the prospect and their list of questions saying, are you a fit? Are you a fit? Are you a fit? As opposed to saying, yeah, what's the thing that you're really trying to solve here? What's the problem? How can I help you define that? And the people that can make that, that leap, they understand that really their first job as a seller is to help the buyer understand what it is they're trying to do. What's the problem they're trying to solve? What's the outcome they can achieve? And use that as a bridge to really understand what those most important problems are for the buyer. They're the ones that are consistently successful. Andy, uh, last week I was a guest at Chris Voss's uh, premiere of a new movie at the Sundance Film Festival. Chris Voss, of course, who wrote mm -hmm. the book. Um, Never Split the Difference. Yep. Never Split the Difference. And of the many profound things he said in the Q&A afterwards, he said something similar to the following. It's not a sin to lose a sale. It's a sin to take too long to lose a sale meaning that that discovery process is so important to realize how quickly are you perhaps wasting each other's time. What right. advice would you give to a quoted, pressured salesperson whose career and job is on the line? I mean, they need to meet their quarterly goal three quarters in a row or they've been told they're out. They, they're, mm -hmm. they're commission based and their draw is small, small and they got to feed their family. So they're tempted to sure. close sales that may not always be the right sale, not, not necessarily unethical or immoral or certainly not illegal. Not every sale has always been the right sale. How, yep. What advice would you give to someone that's a pressured quoted salesperson that needs to know how do they not take too long to lose the sale, but at the same time, take enough time to develop the relationship and the rapport to truly understand what the client needs to accomplish. Well, but that's, that's, that is the tension, right? Yeah. And so when you say not too long, how are you measuring that in duration or in a quantity of time? And I think this sort of points to a fundamental issue that exists in sales is that so many things are measured in duration, but the real effect for a seller is how much of your selling time you're spending, because that's your resource as a seller. You have a finite amount of time. And this gets back to the ideas I read about in the book is, is how do you become more effective in the time that you have? And so that is straying away from the scripted questions that don't really drive you to this, this outcome of really understanding, again, the things that are driving a buyer to make a decision. Yeah, so much is written these days, like about you know loss aversion and you know in the midst of recession, buyers being motivated by that. I really don't think that's the case. It's, there's something that people want to achieve, and my experience has been over you know, 40 plus years of sales and selling things from you know hundred thousand dollar computer systems to hundred million dollar satellite communication systems. Is every buyer has that one thing, and that's your job as a seller is to say, look, how do I build the level of trust that enables me to ask the questions that the buyer will then answer. Questions that other people may ask, but they don't have that level of trust and credibility, they're not going to get the answer to those questions. So that's why you have to invest on the front end to say, look, I can be completely clear with the buyer about my motivations are working with them, build my credibility and trust with them, and then they're going to give me permission to sort of 
stick my nose in their business and they're going to reveal answers to me they're not going to provide to somebody else. If you want to start accelerating or shortening the amount of time you're actually spending with someone, you have to lead in that direction as opposed to doing the superficial sort of survey-based question asking that most discovery is these days for sellers. This is how they're trained, right? They're just looking for fit as opposed to looking for the problems the buyer is really trying to solve. You use the word salesy with some frequency in the book to describe yes. you know, certain types of behaviors. Would you flip the script for a moment and take on the persona of a buyer? What mm -hmm. do buyers not want most emphatically in a sales meeting or a sales call? What do they not want to happen? <laughs> they don't want somebody to try to just persuade them to buy the product. Right? They want somebody to be really sincerely interested in them. And again, the things that are, that are most important to them. And when sellers adopt the sort of pitchy persuasion-based approach to sales, yeah, buyers put their defenses up. And they're saying like, yeah, I mentioned the book, I referenced a book written by a fellow named Jonah Berger out of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, he had written and said, look, 100% of people in the world, the universal, naturally resist being persuaded. And yet that is one of the fundamental, quote unquote, skills, sales skills, both the sales skills that we attempt to train sellers in these days. And it's sort of ironic we do that because 100% of the people in the world resist wanting to be persuaded. I feel like there's a little bit of a, a sea of confusion in the sales world because as of late, I have heard that one of the biggest pet peeves of a buyer is don't walk in and ask me what keeps me up at night. Like, do not ask me that question. That was a decade ago. What are my ago. pain points? What's that? What are my pain points? Yes, yeah, don't, don't like, ask that. Don't ask me that. You should have researched all of that. You should be intimate about our you know, 10Q and our 10K and our inner report and everything you need to know is available out there in terms of what we're trying to do. You should have your meeting be very succinct. Do not walk me through your 20 point PowerPoint deck telling me all about yourself. But don't do that. But at the same time, don't try to persuade me to buy. Just do discovery, kind of open-ended, clean sheet, white paper consulting type thing. Can you like give us the final point on what should salespeople be doing in the midst of lots of different conflicting advice? Right. Here's the mindset to have is, and unfortunately, we've we've sort of train sellers to believe that buyers, and there's been all sorts of little data points about this, that buyers are 70% of the way through their buying process before they interact with sellers. Because of the, the first online time. discovery, because of referrals, things like that, right? Yeah, and I think I think that's just completely untrue. Yes, they've done certain things, but they haven't made up 70% of their mind. In fact, I would argue it's the opposite, is that for the most part, buyers are looking for sellers to help them understand better the problems they do have, to use their experience with other customers to help them provide some context to the struggles they might have, and then also to help them define what potential outcomes could be by addressing those problems. So if the buyer is, if you truly believe as a seller, you're going to talk to your buyer and they're 70% of the way through their, their decision-making process by the time they interact with, interact with you for the first time, what that means is that some other seller was in there laying out the vision of what success would look like and helping them define that problem. So you have to go in with the mindset that the buyer does not completely understand the full context of the challenges they have. They do not understand fully the outcomes they can achieve by addressing them. 
And that is your primary role at the beginning of a sales interaction or sales conversation is to help the buyer define that. Let's talk about RFPs. Uh, sure. Uh, maybe better called RIPs because I have chased a lot of RFPs in my day and I've swung my pendulum always, right? I mean, massive resources, convinced we've got a shot, only to learn the last five were already just validation for the person who already picked their favorite person. They just needed all that research done on your back, your expense, your flight, all of that. Right. Back to where I've seen that it seems like maybe RFPs are now are a little more legitimate and they're a little more transparent and they're not out just to validate the pet project or the pet vendor. Are there any specific insights that you could remind salespeople of, sales leaders of, how to know when an RFP is a legitimate opportunity for you to win the business? Are there questions? Are there intuitions? Talk about RFPs. Well, for me, it's, it's always been, can I see the sort of hidden hand of another vendor in there? Meaning is based on the specification that exists within the the RFP or maybe within the details of the compliance matrices they might have, has someone else set the vision, some other vendor set the vision for what the buyer is trying to accomplish? That was always my goal and working in long-term relationships, whether you know, sold to the government as well as to large corporations that used RFPs, is you know, we knew something, an opportunity was coming sometimes a year, two years in advance, as you spent the time trying to influence what that specification was going to be on the paper that they released to the public. And in the absence of having that influence, as a business, you have to say, well, somebody did that. You know, the buyer wasn't doing it all on their own. Somebody was influencing that, whether it's a consultant or another vendor. You need to understand what that looked like and the influence they had and make a real tough business decision, whether it's worth the investment of your time and attention and resources and money to respond to that RFP. And you use the word intuition. Ultimately, as you become more experienced, that's part of what draws, you know, boils down to is, do you really have a shot? Then what's your gut tell you about that? Maybe I'm just more courageous or arrogant or lack self-awareness. But as I turn 55, I would advise someone to do what I would do now, which is to ask the client, we'd like to win this business. But we also want you to be honest with us if our time and talent is simply going to allow you to validate a pre-selected vendor. I don't want to be involved in that because that feels disingenuous to us. Can you assure right. us that this is a fair level set game and we actually have a chance of winning this business? Because I'm going to say no to other things at the expense of perhaps winning your trust in business. I would ask that forthrightly just like that now. Sure. And I've done that over the years and had customers tell me what they needed to tell me in order to keep me involved because they needed to have two or three bids at a right. minimum in order to right. validate right. the one that they are in favor of. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not that you can't trust people, but buyers have their own motivations for collecting multiple bids. Sometimes people need to be able to say to their bosses, yeah, we looked at two or three other vendors. Sometimes by law, they're obligated right. to collect, you know, if it's a government agency, collect multiple bids. It's a great question to ask, but my experience is I could never fully trust the answer. I'm still gonna to have to sort of vet it. Disappointing, but helpful to have you repeat that. Let's talk about the role of a sales leader. Very mm. few independent sales contributors don't roll up into some player coach or sales leader. And your experience over the decades of you building this expertise that's also in your book and on your podcast, 
What do you view are the competencies of a phenomenal, perhaps even career-changing sales leader, meaning a salesperson's career changed as a result yes. of modeling, listening, being coached by a great sales leader? Yeah, well, I think, yeah, again, I write in the book, role of a salesperson, you know, our job is to listen to our buyers, understand things that are most important to them, and then help them achieve that. I think that's the role of a sales leader. It's the same same role. And unfortunately, we're not training our next generation of sales managers to really focus on this, which is, hey, your job is to make sure to listen to your sellers, make sure you truly understand the things that are most important to them in terms of what they're trying to achieve in their lives and their career, and then help them get that. Instead, what we've devolved to is a situation where increasingly sales managers are what we call metrics jockeys, where they feel pressure to report on the metrics to managers. And this idea of coaching and developing individual sellers, by and large, is falling by the wayside. And you look at the surveys about sales coaching, and there was one that came out a couple of years ago. I had a company that did the survey on my podcast. And the paraphrasing the sort of net result of the survey was, you know, 80% of coaches or sales managers said that they devote, you know, one hour a week to each seller coaching and survey of the sellers, 80% of them said they get no coaching whatsoever. So there's a huge perceptual gap that exists uh, between what the sellers think they need and what they're getting from their managers versus what the managers think they're, they're providing. And that really starts at the top is that we're not training and investing in frontline managers in particular about the skills they need to have in order to develop the people that work for them. Instead, you know, they're, they're being trained primarily on, hey, how do I develop reports and report on whether we are making enough cold calls and doing enough demos and so on and so forth. And you see the impact of this, both in terms of the churn rate among sellers in the tech world these days, the average tenure for an account executive, you know, a senior salesperson is under 12 months. And you can't expect to build a you know, continuity within a sales organization if people are leaving that quickly. But what that data is really saying is, is people are leaving their bosses because their bosses aren't in a position to help them further develop in their career. So they're going to look for somewhere else to try to develop. So I think that companies, you know, I like to use this in the example on my, my podcast, say, look, if we're spending you know, multiple billions of dollars, I think numbers are $15 billion a year on sales training in the United States. And we're spending approximately, you know, 95% of that amount on training individual sellers. What if we flip that? What if we spent 90% of that 15 billion on training managers up and down the management change, how to manage sellers, how to develop sellers, how to uh, coach improved performance I think we would have a much better return on that dollar than spending all that money training individual salespeople. I can assure you there's a lot of CEOs listening to this podcast now pondering that question. I, I, to answer the question, one, I was both a sales contributor and a sales leader mm -hmm. about a decade each in my career. And one of the things I liked to do when I was on a, a call, like a client visit, prospecting visit with a salesperson reported to me, I liked to, after that, meeting, go back to the car or go to a restaurant and debrief it. And I mm -hmm. would always lead out. I would always talk about the things that I had done wrong in the meeting. Oh my gosh, I said that, or I should have asked this, or I, I meant to do this, but it came out that way. And it wasn't me trying to 
have my own confessional, but I wanted to lower the barrier of concern because not every sales leader is the best salesperson. I know right. a lot of great sales leaders have quite frankly got there through other routes than being the number mm -hmm. one salesperson or vice versa. And not every salesperson has the relationship or the empathy or the self-awareness or the charm or the charisma or the skills to model what's right for you. But I do right. think there's value in vulnerability. And, mm -hmm. and as the sales leader saying, here's all the things I think I could have done better. How about you? It's rare that a salesperson would tell their boss what they did wrong. But I do think it sets the condition for the salesperson to also acknowledge what they did well, what they could have done better and have a conversation there. Because I found that 30 minute debrief after the meeting with the client was so helpful to talk about what could we both have done differently? What will we do differently at the next meeting? And that incremental process and the trust between the sales leader and the salesperson, not rushing in to save the day, not taking it over just to close the deal. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's an important relationship that I think is sometimes too superficial and too hierarchical. Would you agree? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the, one of the issues, and this happens unintentionally all the time, is that to a point you'd made before is, is a sales manager goes on a call thinking they're there to sort of save it to some degree yeah. or. And sometimes they, that's they, the case, right? Sometimes the deal needs to be saved. Yeah, but maybe it doesn't need to be saved, but that's the perspective. They think they're being brought in because they need to be the hero at that point. And what they end up doing is undermining the seller. And yeah, I see this all the time. I coach people about this in terms of how they set it up with their manager before they go on calls. You have this rule of thumb that, and I used to develop this throughout my own experience uh, by having managers come with me on calls and CEOs come with me on calls. Is is you know the number of times you ask a buyer to repeat their story, you know your odds of winning the deal are sort of inverse in inverse proportion to the number of times you ask a buyer to tell you their story. Meaning that if you know you're bringing your frontline manager and they say, oh, tell us again about what you do and your needs and, and what you're trying to do. And then you bring in the VP and they ask the same questions. You bring in the CEO, they ask the same questions. Your odds of going winning the deal go down dramatically. Because basically what everybody's sort of saying is like, I didn't trust the person that was here before. Uh, and so we have this sort of dysfunctional organization. Mm -hmm. So culturally within a team is you have to set up is, you know, what is the purpose of bringing a manager on a call? Is it to answer a question the sellers or make a commitment the seller's not, you know, enabled to, to commit to? That's one thing. Um, but you have to be very specific about what it is you want to have happen. And we're not there to recreate the wheel. You're not there to start the beginning again. Is managers also have an obligation to prepare for calls on their own, which they oftentimes don't. It was different back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, but before there were CRM systems, you as a seller had to educate your manager, you know, these days. Oftentimes I see managers going to calls and they didn't even look at the CRM to see what's been going on in that account. So everybody has to take responsibility to prepare, but they have to say, look, what we're trying to do in this call is we're trying to advance, help the buyer make progress toward making a decision. What role do I have in that today? And what very one or two very specific things can I do to make that happen? Otherwise, what's the point of bringing that person on the call? Andy, let's finish with a story in midway through the book, you share a story back when you were in sales. I believe you were working for a computer company and you were pitching yes. something to like a lumber supplier and you use that to talk about kind of the one question you'll always get asked. Will you tell the story and then set it up for the lesson that everyone should be prepared for? 
Well, the one, yes. So uh, actually, yes, to a home builder. And home builder. I cold called a CEO of a home builder, a large home builder in the San Francisco Bay Area. And, and uh, not expecting to, <laughs> not as one of those calls you make and not expecting the CEO to be there and kind of hoping on one hand, he's not going to be there. Yeah. And reception said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. And brought me into his office. And and as I started to pitch him, the CEO held up his hand and said, yeah, stop. And took this deck of business cards out of his top of his drawer of his desk and sort of fanned them out like a deck of playing cards and said, so, you know, I've talked to all these computer salespeople, haven't bought anything from them. Why should I buy from you? And for me, this was a you know, story in the book. The point was, is that he was talking about, why should I buy from me personally? Right. It wasn't about the company. It wasn't about the product as well. Why should he buy from me? And it's such an eye opening thing as a young seller to understand that, yeah, this is the key relationship and it is about me. And I was the diff had the ability uh, to become the differentiator in the mind of the buyer between myself and the competition. That it wasn't about products. It was about this relationship. It was about the trust and the credibility I built and the level of understanding I developed about the problems and how I could help them. And this is still the case today. You know, there's a company out of Australia, a company called Trinity Perspectives, CEO is a friend of mine, and, and they do win-loss analysis for enterprises around the world. And they summarize their findings of hundreds, if not thousands of interviews they've done over the past dozen years about why you win big deals and why you lose big deals. And so there are nine reasons why you win big deals and nine reasons why you lose big deals. And out of those 18 reasons, not one had to do with the product or the price or the functionality. They all had to do with this experience with the individual seller in helping the buyer navigate their buying process. And that was really powerful to see that because that just reinforced what certainly had been my experience and what I've been advocating over the years is that despite all the technology and automation coming into sales, at the end of the day, the point of key point of differentiation is still you, the seller, the human. And personally, I don't believe that's going to diminish. I think that's going to increase in importance as we become more automated. So let's, let's end with that because that's a great setup. Speak to every sales vice president, every general manager, every district manager, every sales leader. Therefore, mm -hmm. what? They should be hiring and training what exact skills in their sales force? Is it listening skills? Is it empathy? Is it the ability to bring your authentic self but be chameleon enough to where the other person likes you? Is it to demonstrate trust? Is it to under-deliver, or sorry, under-promise or over-deliver? What, what exactly should salespeople's, sales leaders right. be training in their staff? Let me, you know, take a step back and just sort of create this dichotomy and think about what we do is we train sellers today and sort of things they know, right? Product, the customer, your process, your methodology. But the data that I talked about, that just talked about, is showing that when buyers make a decision to buy, they buy not what you know, they buy who you are. To your point, per se, your empathy, your ability to connect, your ability to deploy your curiosity, your ability to make the buyer feel heard and understood which I contend is one of the biggest sources of value you as a seller can provide to a buyer. It's these human attributes. Jeff Colvin in his book, Humans Are Underrated, 
uh, wrote about this. He wrote the disruption of technology and automation over the years on employment. And then his sort of summary was, you know, looking forward in the 21st century with the impact of AI and machine learning on employment, on jobs, said those people who are able to become top achievers are those people who will learn how to become more intensely human. They can provide the experiences that the machines just aren't capable of providing and won't be. You know, this is the gap between the machines and the humans. The technology is amazing and it's going to help us to a certain degree. But at the end of the day, when you're having that conversation, it's you versus, not you versus, but you with talking with another human being. You have the ability to be the difference. And it is these human skills, you said, the empathy, the connection, the credibility, the trust, the ability to synthesize information and have you know, a creative response to that in terms of the type of questions you ask, reaching this level of understanding, and then how you help the buyer use their time to and provide value to them to enable them to make the decision. Those are distinctly human skills that we don't train generally in sales because we focus on sort of this conventional way of doing things. And... Yeah, at the end of the day, the humans will make the difference. And I think, again, as we get more automation into it and, and buyers do more self-service, is the machine experience, they're all going to be the same, right? Whether I'm talking to your bot or your AI system versus another. And this is what the shortcoming becomes. And there's been research about this in the medical field that has deployed AI-based decision assist systems for a long time is there becomes a sort of curve where the patients stop trusting the AI system quite as much. And the reason being is that the machine can't acknowledge how unique that individual situation is, because we all think our own situation is unique. And this has certainly been the case I've experienced in sales over the years, you know, selling into a specific industry. Yes, the companies I'm talking to, their needs are all pretty similar, but in their minds, their situation is unique from everybody else's. And it's your ability as a human to be able to ask the questions to help surface why they think that's unique and help them feel understood in that regard that's always going to set you apart. Andy, I think you actually said it right. I think it is you versus. I think it's you versus <clears throat> yourself is what it is. Andy Paul, yeah. you're the author of the book Sell Without Selling Out, host of a great podcast. Check him out, follow him. Thanks for joining us today on this podcast. Scott, thank you for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <music>